Romans chapter 3, verses 9 to 18. Romans chapter 3, 9 to 18. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They've all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Let's join our hearts together as we pray, as we come to the preaching of God's word. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we, we ask as we begin this new series on the doctrines of your saving grace, that you would help us to understand them. You would help me to preach them faithfully, clearly, in a way that would be a blessing to your people, and that you would help us all to greatly appreciate more and more your great salvation, purchased by Christ and applied by the Spirit. Help me in this time. Fill me by your Spirit. Give me much grace that I might be an ambassador for Christ and that we might have a greater knowledge of the doctrine of total depravity. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to begin a new series on what is sometimes called the doctrines of grace. The doctrines of grace, sometimes also called the five points of Calvinism. The reason why I prefer them being called the doctrines of grace, not that I'm I would be fine calling them Calvinism, but the reason I prefer that language is because even if John Calvin never existed, I would still believe in the doctrines of grace because the Bible tells me so. So even if the man never existed, it's not an argument about Calvin or that man. It's an argument of what the scriptures teach themselves. And so I prefer the language of doctrines of grace because that takes it away from one man because a lot of times people think it's about one man or one person. And like I said, to say it again, even if John Calvin never existed, I would still believe them because the Bible tells me so. And so the the main thing is not about a man, but it's about what the word of God clearly teaches about salvation. And this series is crucial because understanding the doctrines of grace helps a person more appreciate their great salvation. Because the doctrines of grace, all they are is a summary of how our great triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, saves his people from their sins. And so the doctrines of grace simply open up to us how 
our majestic and glorious triune God saves us, hell-deserving sinners, and makes us his precious saints. And that's what the doctrines of grace are all about. The doctrines of grace, of course, otherwise we shouldn't believe them, are rooted in the Old Testament and the New Testament scriptures. But in historical theology, when we look at history, the church confessed these doctrines, and then they got challenged with a man named Pelagius, and Augustine had to fight against the heresy of Pelagian that we were born good and we didn't need grace and all these things, and Augustine had to fight against that. And then these things were held by the church. And then there was a man in the 1600s named, who went by Jacobus Arminius. And he started to fight against the held doctrines in the Reformed churches of God's sovereign grace. And because of his pushback, interestingly, this little book by Chapel Library gives a good helpful summary of that time period. So if you're looking for a little bit more, you can read the preface to this. And in that, they show that actually Jacobus Arminianus actually believed in total depravity, but he questioned other things. And what happens many times is the first person maybe is a little bit more mild, a little bit more not as aggressive, but then his followers take it further. And that's what happened. Jacobus Arminius' followers took it farther than he did and came against the Reformed view of salvation. And it was coming to a point that it might even start a civil war. That's how serious this was and the need to get these things clarified. So there was a synod called in the 1600s, and we have their summary in what's called the Canons of Dort. The Canons of Dort is where we get a summary of what has been commonly called the doctrines of grace. They weren't invented in the 1600s, but this is when, because of error, because of wrong teaching brought into the church, they need to codify what they believe more clearly and more precisely. And this is very important because if you look at church history, a lot of times what happens is the church is confessing something, unashamedly confessing, and then you have men rise up speaking perverse things, speaking error or even heresy, and the church comes together and has to, with crystal clear language, refute the heretics. And so some people who are ill-informed could say something like, you know the doctrine of the Trinity was invented in 325 at the Council of Nicaea. That's what someone's speaking in great ignorance because they didn't invent the doctrine of the Trinity there. They were simply having to codify it more clearly because of the Arian heretics. And so this is how church history works. You have a heretic rise up and it forces the church to be precise in their language. And it's very interesting. In church history, a lot of times the heretics would say this. We only want to use Bible words, which sounds very pious, doesn't it? We only want to say what the Bible says. The trouble with that is a lot of times the people saying that were the heretics. Because this is what would happen. They would quote Bible verses, but they would put their own meaning to it. They would put their fallacious, uh, sinful interpretation of it to twist it to their own destruction. So what the Orthodox men had to do is they had to use non-biblical words to define biblical concepts. One of the most common words in Greek 
There was a Greek word that meant Jesus was of the same substance with the Father. And they had to define it very precisely so that the heretics couldn't agree with it. Because they would agree with Bible words, but they would put their own definition. And let me just say something in passing. We should be very uncomfortable with someone because it's the heretics in church history who said, I only want to use Bible words. Because what usually that means by that is, I don't want to be held to a precise definition of these words. It's actually been heretical men in church history who have said, I only believe what the Bible says. Heretics have done that because they don't want to be pressed with precise definitions of words. And to the, to the person thinking, of course, all of us believe the Bible is our final standard. All of us believe that the Bible is our final authority. But the trouble with that is when people put their own definitions in what the Bible means. And that's why things like the Cans of Dort, our own Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, or other creeds like the Nicene Creed or the Chalcedonian Statement are important because they say not only is this what the Bible says, this is what the Bible means by what it says. Hopefully I'm making that clear. Both are important because the Jehovah's Witness say, we believe the Bible. All the cults, many of them will say, we believe the Bible. The trouble is they put their own definitions into what they say the Bible means. So this is why we must be committed to not just saying what the Bible says, but giving a right understanding of what the Bible means by what it says. So all that being said, this is what the Cans of Dort were trying to do. They were trying to take from the Bible and summarize what the Bible teaches about our salvation. They were trying to come against what had been called the the remonstrance, come against them and say, that's not what the Bible teaches. And we are going to take from biblical revelation and put in man's words, our words, a faithful, clear summary of what the Bible teaches. Because we are commanded to hold fast to the pattern of sound words, which would not just be quoting Bible verses, but actually giving meaning to what those Bible verses mean. We are to hold to the faith, the doctrine of the Bible, hold fast to the faith. We are to contend for the faith, a body of doctrine, which was once for all delivered to the saints. And we know we have to do this. I'm, sorry, I'm kind of giving a, a, an apologetic for why something like this is, is good. But we all know why this is important because we don't expect a sermon for someone to just read Bible verses the entire time. What is a sermon? You read it and then you give, God helping the preacher, a right and faithful understanding of what it means by what it says. That's what preaching is. And things like the Kansador or other confessional documents were made so that the church could have a guardrail to say, this is what's true and this is what's false. This is what salvation is. This is what it isn't. And so the cans of Dort were for that reason, so that we could have in church history a faithful summary of what God's salvation really is. And so there was five key errors that the remonstrants brought, and they had five arguments against those, which have been called many times the doctrines of grace, which were... In common language, we sometimes think of it as, or we sometimes summarize it as tulip, which is total depravity, unconditional election, 
limited atonement, irresistible grace, and the perseverance of the saints. Those are the doctrines of grace. And so the first one that I want to focus on this morning, God helping me, is the doctrine of what has been called total depravity. Total depravity. So this will be unique for those who have been listening to me consistently. Usually, I read a text, I try to explain the text, and then I try to apply the text. This sermon series will be a little bit different. It'll be more like a topical exposition. Taking a topic and seeking to see what the Bible says about this topic. So I will talk about Romans 3, the text that was read, but this is more a summary of what does the Bible teach about this doctrine commonly called total depravity. So if you're expecting a tight exposition of Romans 3, 9 to 18, that's not what this sermon is. This is a topical exposition seeking to explain total depravity. So the main point of this sermon is, what is total depravity? I want to define it. What is total depravity? It's importance and practical lessons from this doctrine. So I, again, what is total depravity? It's importance and practical lessons from this doctrine. So my first point, what is total depravity? What is total depravity? My second point, total depravity's importance. And my third point, practical lessons from the doctrine of total depravity. So again, my first point, what is total depravity? Well, first, I do want us to look at Romans 3. So if you want to have your Bibles open at Romans 3, we do see a great summary here of this doctrine. As Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is building a case against the sinfulness of man and the reality that man is in a helpless condition before God. So we see first the reality that man... Jews and Greeks, or Jews and Gentiles, verse 9, are all under sin. Meaning every single person who is not saved by Christ, the natural man, is under the power of sin. Second, we see that the natural man is not righteous. Nothing that they do is righteous in God's sight. Verse 11, we see that they don't understand The natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. They're foolishness to him, the Bible says. They don't understand spiritual realities because their minds are darkened. We see as well in verse 11, they don't seek God. The natural man does not seek God. He's at odds with God. He's running from God, but he never seeks God on his own. We see as well, verse 12, that they have all turned aside meaning that the natural man is not towards God and towards his righteousness, but they're running away from God. They've turned away from God. They become unprofitable because nothing they do pleases God or is righteous and good. And then verse 12, again, they don't do anything good. The natural man, there is no one who does good. No, not one. Verse 13, their throat is an open tomb. It's, it's disgusting. Their tongues, they they practice deceits. They are deceitful people. The natural man is not marked by truth, but by lies. The poison of asp, which is like a serpent, is under their lips. They're they're venomous. Their mouth, it's full of cursing and it's full of bitterness. They're swift to shed blood. 
They have destruction and misery in their ways. They don't know the way of peace, peace with God or true peace with other people. And lastly, in verse 18, we see there is no fear of God before their eyes. So the natural man, I could summarize it this way just by these verses, doesn't seek God and doesn't fear God. So their attitude towards God in their natural lost condition is one of running from God, never seeking him, and one of rebelling and hating God, not fearing him. Because the natural man does not fear God. There's no fear of God before their eyes. And just for clarity, as we look at, if you look at the beginning of verse 10, it begins with this phrase, as it is written. Because all these things from 10 to verse 18 are just quotations from the Old Testament. Paul, by the Holy Spirit, is seeking to bring Old Testament texts to affirm from the scriptures that all men without salvation are under sin. And it shows by their life, their thoughts, and their relationship with God. Not seeking him and not fearing him. And so total depravity is connected with these things. Total depravity, just for clarity, is not to be confused that a person is as sinful as they possibly could be because of God's restraining grace. God even restrains the wickedness of men. But what it does mean is that they are completely depraved in every faculty of their being, in their mind, in their heart, and in their will. And so a key point of total depravity is I would summarize a key thing. When we say a person is totally Depraved. A person is in a totally depraved state. What we mean by that is this. That in that state, they cannot and will not seek God or his salvation. That's what we mean by total depravity. A person who is totally depraved cannot and will not seek God for salvation. And both of those words are important. Cannot and will not. Or I could say will not and cannot. Or to be more precise, they cannot because they will not. Because it's not a natural inability. Let me put it like this. Sometimes we think of people having physical defects. Let's say a person is walking and there's a cliff 20 steps ahead of them. And they're physically blind. They cannot see. That person is physically limited and they don't see any problem. And they need warning, not because of any moral inability or moral problem, but because of a physical defect of they just cannot see. That's not what we mean by total depravity. This is what we mean by total depravity. A person can see very well. They know a cliff is there. And they shut their eyes and tune out their ears and say, I don't want to hear I don't want to hear what you have to say. I want to do what I want. I'm going to go to that cliff if I want to. They shut their eyes purposely because it's a moral inability, not a natural inability. It's not someone who is physically blind. It's someone who says, I can see that there's a cliff and I don't care that there's a cliff. That's what we mean by total depravity. I know there's a cliff. I know I will fall off. I don't care. And this is what the Bible means by saying that the natural man suppresses the truth about God in unrighteousness. If you've been in a pool, you have a beach ball and you press it down, you know it's there, so you have to actively work. And that's what the totally depraved sinner does. They actively work to fight against God and his revelation. And they push down that beach ball 
And they know it's there because God has made himself known in creation and conscience and scripture. And they press that beach ball down because they suppress the truth about God in their unrighteousness. In their unrighteousness. Turn with me to the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis 37 and verse 4, I'll start at verse 3. Genesis 37 and verse 3. I want to show you this in Scripture, this reality of a moral inability. I'm trying to prove to you that the Bible teaches that man, in their fallen condition without salvation, is morally unable. Similar to the analogy I was using with both the cliff and the beach ball. If you look at Genesis 37 and verse 3, it says, Now Israel, Genesis 37, 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age. Also, he made him a tunic of many colors. Verse four. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. They could not do it. Everybody sees that in their Bible. They could not do it. We could almost say it was impossible for them to do it. They could not do it. But why could they could not? Why, why does the Bible use the language could not? Was it because they were defective in their brains? Or was it because of some physical defect? No, not at all. They couldn't because they wouldn't. Hopefully that's crystal clear. They wouldn't speak peaceably to him because they hated him so much. It was a moral inability because their hatred, because they were so hostile to their brother, the Bible describes it as they could not do it. And the problem was not some physical defect. It was a moral hostility against their brother. And so when we see language of our condition before God as cannot doing something, we must remember it's a moral inability. And the reason we cannot do it is because our hearts are so hostile to God in our totally depraved states. We don't seek God because we don't want him. This is the reality of total depravity. And why am I stressing this so much? Because we don't want to think that totally depraved sinners are victims. Sometimes we can almost think about them like they're just kind of chained. They would want to, but they're just restrained. It couldn't be further from the truth. God is freely offering salvation to everyone. The free offer of the gospel goes to everyone. And the totally depraved sinner says, God, I don't want you. I don't want you. I hate you so much that I don't want you in my thinking. I don't want to think about you. I don't want to feel you. I don't want anything to do with you because I'm at enmity with you. The totally depraved sinner is not a victim. He's a rebel. He's a rebel. This is so important that we get this. Because if we don't, we misunderstand what salvation is and what it isn't. Salvation is not God taking a victim and bringing him to to shore. It's taking a rebel and changing his nature so he desires what he should desire. Sinners are not victims. They're rebels against a holy God. That's what total depravity teaches. And so... Man, in this natural state, cannot and will not seek God for salvation. The Cans of Dort put it like this, quote, 
Therefore, all men, so after talking about man being made upright and perfect and his fall into sin, they say this, quote, Therefore, all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and bondage thereto, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing, important language, they use that language as well, able nor willing to return to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, or to dispose themselves to reformation, end quote. So the Candidor, where we get the summary, they even use that language. They're neither able nor willing to return to God. So that's important. This is how the larger catechism of the Westminster Divines, the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 25 The question is this, wherein consisteth the sinfulness of that estate wherein a man fell? And this is their answer, quote, The sinfulness of that estate wherein a man fell consisteth in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or the lack of that righteousness wherein he was created, and the corruption of his nature whereby he is utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite unto all that is spiritually good, and wholly inclined to all evil, and that continually, which is commonly called original sin, and from which do proceed all actual transgressions, end quotes. Or our own confession of faith. From the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith, this is chapter 6, par- paragraph 4. They say this, quote, From this original corruption whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions, end quote. So in this, they're basically summarizing what sometimes is asked. Is the person born, are they, do they become a sinner because they sin or they sin because they are a sinner? And what Our confession is saying is because of our nature being conceived in sin, born in sin, born as hell-deserving sinners, we therefore sin. So we are born sinners, and therefore we sin. And so the natural man in his fallen state without salvation through Christ will never seek God, fear God, or turn to God for salvation. And the reason why they won't do it is because their heart is hostile to the things of God. The carnal mind, the Bible says, is enmity against God. It's not subject to the law of God, nor indeed can it be. Because it's at enmity with its creator. And so this is the doctrine Again, in in summary, when we say someone is totally depraved, we mean that without the regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they would neither be able nor willing to come to God for salvation. But now let's look in the scriptures for some of these things. Let's look now. That's a summary of the doctrine. Now let's look at scriptures that testify to this. Turn to the book of Genesis. Turn to the book of Genesis. If you look at Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. Now we're going to look at several scriptures, verses from the Old and New Testament, seeking to see this doctrine of total depravity from the scriptures. 
Genesis 6, 5. Genesis 6 and verse 5. It says there, Genesis 6, 5, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So we see there that man, this is obviously post-fall, that his wickedness was great, and that every intention of his heart, the thoughts of his heart, was only evil. Because the natural man cannot do good, as we saw in Romans. So his heart is only bent towards evil, and that continually. That's the state of natural man. If you look at Job 15, turn to the book of Job. You'll want to have your Bibles handy because we're going to be looking at several scriptures. Job 15 and verse 16. Job 15, 16. I think I'm going to start at verse 14, though, to give a little bit of context. So Job chapter 15 and starting at verse 14. Job Job 15, starting at verse 14. It says, What is man that he could be pure? And he was born of a woman that he could be righteous. If God puts no trust in his saints and the heavens are not pure in his sight, how much less man, here's the verse. So Job 15 verse 16. How much less man who is abominable and filthy, who drinks iniquity like water. That's the condition of natural man. God says natural man, they're abominable, they're filthy. And and he wants to describe them in this way. They drink iniquity, which is a synonym for sin, like it's water. It's their sustenance. They live off sin. They drink it like water. That's the condition of natural man. If you turn to Psalm 51, Psalm 51 and verse 5, this shows us the reality that this sinfulness, this totally depraved state, is not something that we grow into, but it's something we receive at conception because of our father, Adam. Psalm 51 and verse 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. David is confessing not that his mom did something sinful, but he's saying, I was conceived as a sinner the moment of my conception. When did David become a sinner? The moment he was conceived. He was conceived in sin in his mother's womb. If you look at Psalm 58, Psalm 58, as we continue our survey of Bible passages that show the sinfulness of man in their natural state. Psalm 58, starting at verse 3. And I'll read down to verse 5. Psalm 58 and verse 3. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. If you ever wondered why children don't have to be taught to sin, you can go to Psalm 58, verse 3. That's a good verse for you. The wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray as soon as they are born, speaking lies. Now verse 4. Their poison is like the poison of a serpent. They are like the deaf cobra that stops its ears, which will not heed the voice of charmers, charming ever so skillfully. This is why I'm pretty sure uh, Vodi Bakum got viper in a diaper from this text. I'm, I'm most likely this is where he got it, because that's what the Bible teaches, that babies are cute, but they are vipers in diapers. They ha- are those who, as soon as they're born, They go astray speaking lies. 
And they are like the poison of the poison of a serpent. That's how the Bible describes natural man. This is describing even little ones in their fallen state without Christ. And then if you look at Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. Jeremiah 13, 23. Jeremiah 13 and verse 23. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leper its spots? Then may you also do good who are accustomed to do evil. What's being said, just like it's impossible for the Ethiopian to change his skin in a true sense or the leper to change his spots, it's also impossible for someone in their own strength by themselves who's accustomed to do evil to do good. It's impossible for them to do that. In themselves, just like it's impossible for someone to change their skin or to have a leper take away its spots by themselves. Now, if you turn with me to John chapter 3, now we'll look at New Testament texts. John chapter 3, if you look at verse 19 and 20, John 3, 19 and 20, and again, what I'm trying to do with this overview is show you from these passages of Scripture this doctrine that has been summarized in what I read from the Cans of Door, the Westminster Larger Catechism, and our own Confession of Faith, the Second London Baptist Confession of Faith. So John 3, 19 and 20. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come in the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the lights, and does not come to the light. Why? Lest his deeds should be exposed. So we see here, Jesus is saying that the natural man, they love darkness and they hate lights. And why do they love the darkness? Because their deeds are evil. And why do they not come to the light? One, because they love darkness and because they don't want their deeds to be exposed. This is the condition of natural man. They don't come to the light because they hate the lights. They hate the lights. We even see that exact language in verse 20. For everyone practicing evil hates the light. That goes back to my point. Sinners don't come to Christ, not because of a natural inability, like a physical defect, but a moral inability because of hatred against God. They're not victims, they're rebels. We must get this crystal clear in our minds. This is also important too because one of the hardest doctrines for people to understand is the doctrine of God's punishment for sin, the doctrine of hell. And I think sometimes it's because people think about sinners more like victims than they do rebels. They think of them more as victims than they do as hell-bent rebels against God. That's how the Bible pictures lost man, not as victims of a physical defect but as rebels against the light that they have, but they hate it, and so they suppress it in their unrighteousness. This is crucial that we get, or we will not understand salvation or rights. Now if you turn to John chapter 6 and verse 44, John 6 and verse 44, John 6, 44,
It says there, John 6, 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Jesus says here, no one can come to me. No one. It's impossible for anyone to come to the Father or come to the Son. The only way it will ever happen unless the Father sent draw the Father who sent Christ draws them. Someone might say, but doesn't God draw everyone? That can't be the case because he says those who are drawn will be raised up to resurrection life at the last day. So everyone who's drawn will be saved. So it can't be everyone's drawn. It's, of course, as we'll see, only the elect of God, especially in, in later sermons. But we see here that without God's effectual grace, no one can come to the Son. It's impossible for them to come to the Son unless the Father who sent the Son draws them. That's what the script, That's what Jesus taught himself. And then if you look at verse 65, he repeats it, or something very similar, same chapter, John 6, 65. And he said... John 6, 65, and he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. He repeats it because it's so important. The, many were, were, were going from him, many were, were leaving, and he reminds them that no one can come to him unless it's granted by the Father. It's impossible for a sinner to come to Christ unless it's granted by the Father. Why? Because they have such enmity against Christ, they would never come unless God works a work of grace in their hearts. Now, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, almost done our Bible survey of verses connected with this doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, But the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness, under him, under, foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. What's being said here is the natural man, I've been using that language, which we do see that language in Scripture, the natural man, the unconverted man, he doesn't receive the things of the Spirit of God because when he sees them and hears them, they're foolishness to him. And then it says, nor can he know them. Again, a language of impossibility. He cannot know them. Why? Because they're spiritually discerned and he's not spiritual. He's a natural man. And therefore, he cannot understand the things of the Spirit of God. He cannot unless the Spirit of God works in his heart to, grit, to open up his eyes to see. Then Ephesians chapter 2. This will be our last text, in our, at least in our survey, of what the Word of God teaches about the doctrine of total depravity. Ephesians 2, if, we, if you look at verses 1 to 3. Ephesians 2, verses 1 to 3. <clears throat> and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves, in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So we see here that Ephesians 2, 1 to 3, 
we see here that natural man before the regenerating grace of God is dead in their trespasses and sins. Sometimes people give the analogy that what salvation is like is we are drowning on in the water and all we need is a, a life raft to be sent to us. And the gospel call is for this person who is alive, but they're drowning to just grab onto the life raft. And if they grab on, they'll be pulled safely. That's not a biblical analogy to what salvation is. A better analogy would be this. That person is dead at the bottom of the ocean. And unless someone who has the power and ability goes down and gives them resurrection life, they would never get back on the shore because they're not drowning. They're dead in their trespasses and sins. And so what is needed is not just a life raft that they would grab onto because they're dead. They can't grab onto it. Dead people don't grab stuff unless they're first made alive. And so we need to first be made alive as we see, if you look at verse uh, five, it goes on in the same chapter, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. So we're dead in trespasses and the only way that we're gonna be saved is if God makes us alive. Because we can never come to God through Jesus unless we are first made alive. Because we, my beloved brethren, before conversion, are dead in our trespasses and sins. So this is scriptures, and we could go to others, but we only have so much time for a sermon. And so the reality of this, or I, at least I, I limit it to, so it's not too long, and so, but these, this is a summary of the verses that we see that teach the doctrine of total depravity. That man in his natural state cannot nor will not come to God for salvation. They cannot do good because they will not do good and they will not come to Christ for salvation. Now my second point, total depravity's Importance, total depravity's importance. Four things that I want to highlight at least. One, the reason why understanding total depravity is important. So now it's kind of the so what. First, because it's crucial for us, even as Christians, to understand who we were in our lost condition. We must understand what God saved us from and what God saved us out of. He didn't, say people, he didn't say people that were pretty good and just need a little pick-me-up. Just a little pat on the back and say, just, you can do it just a little bit better. That's not the people that God saved. God saved dead, rebel, hostile sinners running from him, hating him, hating the lights. And if we don't realize that, we will not understand truly what our salvation consisted of. And so it's crucial that we understand who we were in our lost condition. Second, we will, which is connected, if we don't understand this doctrine of total depravity, we'll never truly understand the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ to rescue us. If we think that we were pretty good and we were doing just fine, we just needed something to kind of fix us up a little bit, then we will not understand what great lengths God went to save his people from their sins. We will not understand what great lengths 
God had to bridge so that we as rebel sinners could be reconciled to him through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Third, unless we understand the doctrine of total depravity, we won't understand rightly why our society and other societies are so wicked and lawless. It should make sense to Bible-believing Christians. It should make sense to us as believers in Christ why the world is so wicked and lawless. Because without Christ, men are totally depraved. And we should actually be surprised, not worse. Because if this is what is true about man, if men drink iniquity like it's water, like the book of Job says, and they hate the light and they practice evil, then it should not surprise us that the world is as wicked and lawless as it is. We pray that it wouldn't be. We desire that it wouldn't be. But we know the answer is ultimately in the gospel because by nature, men are wicked, men are lawless, men are rebellious. And it should help us to understand what's going on around us as we understand people are totally depraved. People are radically depraved. And therefore, we should expect, we pray that they would be redeemed and, and, and all of that, but we should expect sinners to act like sinners. We should expect that, knowing that the only answer for them is not to clean the outside of the cup, but it's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the answer. Because we understand that their problem goes a lot deeper than just a few bad choices. It's their very nature as a rebel sinner. And then fourth, if we don't understand the doctrine of total depravity, we will not praise God like we should for our salvation. If we don't understand that by nature we were rebel sinners, rebelling against God, hating God, not seeking God, not fearing God, and he rescued us from that condition, we will never praise God like we ought or like we should or at least in a small measure like we ought. For our great salvation, accomplished by Christ and applied by the Holy Spirit. And so by understanding this doctrine, we will praise God rightly for saving us. At least closer and closer. Of course, we will not praise him perfectly because we still, even as believers, have remaining sin. But we'll at least appreciate his salvation more and more as we ought. As we realize what he saved us from. And also, I'll just say this as well. If a person really understands, really understands the doctrines of grace, I'm I'm sorry, really understands total depravity, all the other ones come together. If we are really this bad, if we are really dead in our trespasses and sins, if we really cannot come to God, come to Christ unless we're drawn by the Father, if it's true that we drink iniquity like it's water and we don't seek God, we don't fear God, if all those things are true, which, which I believe they are, then the only way we're ever going to be saved is if God chooses us first because we would never choose him. The only way we're going to be saved is if Jesus dies to secure our salvation. And the only way we're going to be saved is if the Spirit of God works in us to make us alive with Christ. And the only way we're going to make it to heaven is if God keeps us by his power unto salvation. So if you get total depravity right, all the other ones just logically follow. Because if this is who we are, then there's no way we're getting saved unless it's a work of God for us. And so this is why it's so important because if someone truly from the heart embraces us, they will will confess like Jonah 
salvation belongs not to me, not to men, but to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. But now my third point, which is similar, but maybe more expanded. But I want to now talk about practical lessons from the doctrine of total depravity. So we've already talked about its importance. These are reasons why it's important. Now some practical lessons. First, I want to talk to the unbelievers here. So if you know you're not a Christian here, maybe you want to be a Christian. Maybe you don't want to be a Christian. Wherever state you're in, I want you to especially listen up. Because this doctrine applies to you as well as to believers. First, to the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever, again, listen up. I plead with you. One, or I want to say this. God never gives people an excuse to reject him or the offers of mercy in the gospel because of total depravity. If you've heard what I said and said, well, that means I can't do anything, so I shouldn't even seek God for salvation, then you misunderstood the whole point. You misunderstood completely. Because what I've been trying to emphasize is the reason why you don't seek God is because you don't want to seek God. The problem is not with God, and I say this lovingly to you, but the problem is with you. It's not God's fault that you're not saved. It's your fault. And some people can say like this, I want to be saved, but God isn't letting me. Maybe they want to use those exact language, but they live like that. But the Bible never, ever, ever says, come to God if you're elect. The call is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The call is repent and believe the gospel. The call is, oh, everyone who's thirst, let him come. The spirit and the bride say, come. That's the call of the gospel. Freely offered to everyone. And the person can never say, I cannot come because God is restraining me. The only thing that is restraining a sinner from coming is their own hearts that is hostile against God. And this is what makes you, as a totally depraved sinner, morally culpable before God. What makes you guilty before God is not because you're restrained in some physical defect sense, like a blindness, a physical blindness, but you can see and you don't want to see. You can hear, but you don't want to hear. That's what the Bible means, you cannot come. It means you cannot come because you don't want to come, like Joseph's brothers, that they could not speak peaceably to their brother because of their enmity against him. And so the call for you is not to say, am I elect? Am I not elect? How can I come to God if, if he hasn't drawn me? The call for you is seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he's near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord and he will have mercy on him. And to our God, for he will abundantly pardon, which is from Isaiah 55. Listen to the cans of Dort. So again, I, I'm quoting this because it's, it's very important in the historical development of these doctrines. Listen to the cans of Dort. Quote, as many as are called by the gospel are sincerely called for God is most earnestly and truly declared in his word what is acceptable to him, namely that those who are called should come unto him. He also seriously promises rest of soul and eternal life to all who come to him and believe, end quote. That's from the cans of Dort. They say when God offers salvation, he sincerely offers it. And he promises to every sinner, if they come, you know what? They're going to find rest and eternal life. 
And so God sincerely offers to every sinner. That's why when we do open air preaching, that's why when we go out handing out tracts, that's when we have conversations, we can look someone in the eye and say, God is calling you and God is offering you through me everlasting life. And we can mean it sincerely because we believe that even though that person will only be saved if it's by the grace of God, we can look at them and say, God offers to you sincerely everlasting life. It's freely offered to you as a sincere promise that whosoever believes in him, Christ will never cast them out. They offer, they, the cans of door also say this, quote, it is not the fault of the gospel. I want everybody, if I've lost you at all, tune into this. This one is very crucial. Quote, it is not the fault of the gospel, nor of Christ offered therein, nor of God who calls men by the gospel and confers upon them various gifts that many who are called by the ministry of the word refuse to come and be converted. The fault lies in themselves, some of whom when called, regardless of their danger, reject the word of life. Others, though they receive it, do not allow it to make a lasting impression on their heart. Therefore, their joy arising only from a temporary faith soon vanishes and they fall away. While others choke to see the word by perplexing cares and the pleasures of this world and produce no fruits. This our Savior teaches in the parable of the sower, end quote. So we see there clearly that the, the fault of not receiving Christ and his gospel lies completely in the sinner. Not in the gospel, not in Christ, not in God. The problem is in the sinner. And so the call for you, if, if you hear this sermon and you know you're not a Christian, if you know you're not a believer, the call for you is not to make excuses Not to say I would believe if I'm elect. But the call for you is to repent and believe the gospel. And the reason, and I say this lovingly to you, but the reason you don't repent and believe is because you don't want to. The reason you don't come to Christ is because you don't want to come to Christ. There could be many, many reasons why that's true. But people do not get saved because they don't want to get saved. We can never look at God on judgment day or say to him now, I would be saved, it's your fault. That will not cut it now and that will not cut on judgment day. The fault lies in ourselves for rejecting his sincere and well-meant offer of the gospel. That The problem's in us. And so parents, as you have children or you have friends or you have family members, as you're talking to them, never let them get away with thinking that the fault's in God. And I've said this before, but I think it's important that we even have to be careful with the language we use to others in this way. The call to them is not pray that God would give you a new heart. The call to them is not pray that God would change you. The call is pray that God would save you through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you know what can happen? And it sounds like a subtle difference, but this is what can happen. They could come back to you as mommy or daddy or friend and say, I prayed that God would give me a new heart, and he didn't. I prayed that God would give me a new heart. I want a new heart, and he didn't give me one. 
And they can think the problem's with God, not with them. And you, in some ways, put them off the hook instead of pressing them with love and grace, but with truth and firmness and passion, saying, son, daughter, friend, loved one, no, the call for you is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Do we believe the only way they'll be saved is if God changes their heart? Absolutely. But the way they're saved is if they come and buy without money and without price this gift of everlasting life. Now practical lessons for the believer. Practical lessons for true Christians. A question that might come up. Is, are we as true believers still totally depraved? Are we as true believers still totally depraved? Have we, even though we have come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, still in a condition of unable and unwilling to seek God or anything related to salvation? Well, the answer is an obvious no. If that's how we define total depravity, the believer is not totally depraved. The believer has been made alive. The unbeliever is dead in trespasses and sins. The believer is now risen to newness of life. We are no longer in our totally depraved state because Romans 3, 9 through 18 is not for the Christian, but for someone to know why they need to become a Christian. It's not for the saved, it's for the lost to know why they need to be saved. Because the true believer, by God's grace, now seeks God, which before we didn't. We now fear God, which before we didn't. And now we have spiritual understanding because we have the mind of Christ, which we didn't have before. So in regeneration, God grants us spiritual life where we go from being totally depraved to being made alive together with Christ. The cans adored again. They put it like this. Listen to how the cans adored puts it. Quote, but when God accomplishes his good pleasure in his elect or works in them true conversion, he not only causes the gospel to be externally preached to them and powerfully illuminates their mind, minds by his Holy Spirit that they may rightly understand and discern the things of the Spirit of God, but by the efficacy of the same regenerating spirit, he pervades the inmost recesses of man. He opens the closed and softens the hardened heart and circumcises that which was uncircumcised infuses new qualities into the will, which though heretofore dead, he quickens from being evil, disobedient, and obstinate. He renders it good, obedient, and pliable, actuates and strengthens it that like a good tree, it may bring forth the fruits of good actions, end quotes. So they're saying that when God regenerates us, he takes us, let me just, Focus, at least on this part, evil, disobedient, and obstinate. That's what we were before God regenerated us. Evil, disobedient, and obstinate. Then, in light of regeneration, he renders us good, obedient, and pliable. We go from being evil in our natures to being good. We become a good tree, like Jesus says. We go from being disobedient, hating God's commandments, to being obedient to his word, not perfectly, but sincerely. And we go from being obstinate, rebelling and hating what God has to say and being stubborn in our wills and our desires to being pliable, where now we're willing to listen to the word of God illuminated by the spirit of God. And so in regeneration, we are made alive, which should make us so thankful to the Holy Spirit who has given us new life, where we were once dead, now we're alive. 
What a blessing this is. That you, if you're a Christian, were once dead, but now you're alive. You once were blind, but now you see. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed, as John Newton says in Amazing Grace. What a blessing this, to know that amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. You know that's become an American ditty and most people don't even know what it means. People love singing Amazing Grace, but they have no idea what John Newton is saying. But if we're Christians, we know exactly what he means. I was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, and now I see. Why? Because of God's amazing grace that took me out of my wretched condition and made me alive together with Christ. Hallelujah, what a savior. That the spirit of God has united me to Christ so that I could repent and believe and therefore have the ability to be saved or, or, or be saved by Christ. However, in light of that, we must remember that even though as believers we're no longer totally depraved, which I think is absolutely clear, rightly defining total depravity, it's also true, though, that the best of saints have remaining sin. And so what total depravity should teach us, that even though we've been risen in newness of life, that unless we watch and pray, we will enter into temptation. Unless we are on guard because we still have indwelling sin, we will fall into temptation. And therefore, we must have consistent battle because until we reach heaven, we will have to struggle with indwelling sin. The remnants of, our, the remnants of corruption that still remain in us. And therefore, it should give us humility before the Lord and sympathy for other Christians, knowing that the Christian life is a fight and has challenges. And so even though we confess truly and sincerely, we're not totally depraved, we still confess that we have indwelling sin, which should make us watchful and prayerful and on guard against our sin. Also as well, it should remind us that the Holy Spirit is ultimately the one who brings a sinner to repentance and faith in Christ. Why is that important? Because there are some people who think, if I don't say it just right, if I don't articulate just right, then it'll be my fault, ultimately, why they didn't get saved. Because they think it's ultimately my responsibility to save them. As if by my clever words, by my compelling speech, somehow I will be able to get them in the kingdom. And this is why, sadly, there are churches that do everything they can, almost manipulative, to get sinners to say a prayer or to walk forward because they think that somehow they can bring someone in the kingdom in their own strength. But we should know that nothing we can do can bring a sinner to Christ. We are completely and utterly dependent upon the Spirit of God working by the Word of God to bring a dead sinner to newness of life. And therefore, yes, we want to present the gospel clearly and effectively, but we must trust, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We must remember that unless the Spirit of God blesses the ministry of the word, they'll be like Ezekiel's dead and dry bones. That unless the Spirit of God blows on them, they will never live. 
And so we are completely dependent upon the Spirit of God. As we'll see more in our series, especially as we think about limited atonement, but I want to say now that this is why the gospel of Christ is such good news for us as believers. Because this is who we were, and it was through God's electing grace and Christ's redemption and the Spirit's application that brought us to salvation. And Jesus died not for victims, but for rebel sinners. But God demonstrated his own love for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, while we were the ungodly, that's who Christ died for, so that he would redeem us and make us his very own. And so we should be ever thankful that Christ was willing to love us and give himself for us, not good people, not righteous people, not godly people by nature as natural men, but as sinners and enemies and the ungodly. And he came to rescue us, even though we didn't deserve it. Because of his grace, because of his mercy. And so, this is why it's so important that we understand the doctrine of total depravity. Because it helps us to know what God commands of us as unbelievers. Which is not to know for elect, but to repent and believe the gospel. And it gives us great thankfulness to God for our salvation as his people. That he brought us from such evil, depravity, and sin. And he brought us from darkness into his marvelous lights. And so this is foundational for everything else because if a person doesn't understand the bad news of their sin, they will never truly understand the good news of God's salvation. And so... We have to understand these things. This is why, just to use an analogy, this is why many people will use a black box when they have an engagement ring. What does the black box do? It highlights the glory of the ring. And the blackness of our sin, understood rightly from the word of God, glory glorifies the diamonds of God's salvation. And so by seeing our sinfulness by nature does not downplay the gospel. It actually makes the gospel that much more beautiful in the eyes of us who believe it. So may God help us to continue to understand these doctrines beginning here today with total depravity that we might be all the more thankful as his people for his salvation, that we might confess salvation is of the Lord. Amen. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the doctrine of total depravity and we thank you for your grace in giving your son to redeem us and giving your Holy Spirit to make us alive. Thank you for these things and help us to contemplate these things. Bring sinners to Christ and encourage your saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.